Monsters. We are so glad that you could join us for today's episode. These weekly podcast episodes also serve as weekly meetings for our very own true crime cult. That's right. We started a cult so that all of our spooky friends have somewhere to go for non-stop creepy content. But never to fear, you've landed in the cult with all of the adorable baby goats and none of the brainwashing. In case you're just joining us for the very first time today, allow us to introduce ourselves. I'm Angelina, and I'm here with my bewitching bestie, Aurora. How was your week? Uh, Nothing new to report here. Just keeping going. How about you? Um, similar, (laughs) I guess. Just uh, trudging through that last uh, bit of winter, I guess. But uh, Never ending. Yeah, never ending forever winter. Uh, I don't know if I ever mentioned on the podcast, because this was a few weeks ago, but like when we had uh, Groundhog Day, um, did you know that our groundhog in Montreal dropped dead? (laughs) I saw that on your Facebook. I don't think you mentioned it on the podcast, but... Just, That's why I think we're in forever winter now, because I'm like, that is got to be a bad omen. Like it's a very bad omen. And that mm. poor groundhog. I know. He died the day before. He died. Yeah. The night before. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Poor baby. What's his name? He has the cutest little Quebecois name. Uh, actually, he was just named Fred. Oh, was it like Fred? Yeah. Oh, it's it's because it's, part of it, the groundhog is in French. Yeah, because in French, it's la marmotte. That's right. That's right. That's what I saw. Oh, well, R.I.P. Fred. <laughs> yes. It's fun to imagine yourself as an honorary cult member as you listen to our show. But if you'd like to make it official, you can join the MMN commune on Patreon. You'll find us at patreon.com slash murder murder news. To show you how much we appreciate your monthly pledge, we'll give you a shout out on the show, your very own official title like Grandmaster of Goats, and we'll even send you your very own adorable baby goat. We'll be right back after a quick commercial break. Hey, I'm Gina. And I'm Amber. And we are here to bring you the Weird True Crime Podcast, where we cover true crime cases that will leave you asking yourself, did that really happen? We'll dive into well-known and not-so-known cases throughout history. Some are unsolved and some are just unbelievable. We'll also talk about current news topics that range from kooky to questionable on episodes that we like to call Weird Headlines. Be sure to subscribe and listen on your favorite podcast service. And we're back. Before we dig in, we want to offer a quick disclaimer. Though we joke about forming a true crime cult, that is not to diminish the severity of actual cult activity. And we want you to know that we take the cases we're discussing very seriously. We want to deliver each story with the utmost respect to victims and anyone involved. If you feel we've missed the mark, you don't like our tone, or if you notice we've gotten any details wrong, let us know with a quick email to murdermurdernews at gmail.com and we'll make it right. Some specific trigger warnings for this episode include sexual assault and graphic depictions of violence. If either of those are particularly sensitive subjects for you, feel free to skip this one and listen to one of our other episodes instead. It's name an amalgamation of Texas, Arkansas, and Louisiana, Texarkana is an unusual little town. Straddling state lines, Texarkana is simultaneously in Miller County, Arkansas, and Bowie County, Texas. 
The reason nearby Louisiana was included in the portmanteau is unknown, and origin stories of the town's name differ depending on who you ask. Technically, two separate municipalities, Texarkana sometimes functions as a single city, and any resident will tell you there is only one Texarkana. The conjoined twin cities meet at a single wide road called State Line Avenue, which dead ends at the most photographed courthouse in the country, the only federal building that's in two states at once. The judge's chair is famously bolted to the floor, ensuring that they're always working in both Arkansas and Texas. I didn't know this, but Texarkana isn't the only town that straddles state lines, allowing its inhabitants to stand in two places at once. There's the twin cities of Bristol, Tennessee and Bristol, Virginia, host to one big annual music festival. The Montego Bay Resort, which is located in both Wendover, Utah and West Wendover, Nevada, is actually in two time zones at once. The tiny town of New Pine Creek is split in half by the California-Oregon border. Folks on the Oregon side carry California driver's licenses, and Californians pick up their mail in Oregon. Texarkana is, however, the only of these cities with a notorious unsolved serial killer case dating back to the 1940s. Sources for today's story include a book by James Presley titled The Phantom Killer, Mental Floss, HistoricMysteries.com, Grunge, Thought Catalog, and more. For a full list of sources, be sure to check out today's show notes. We tend to think of the 70s and 80s as the heyday of serial killings, but they have never been particularly uncommon in America. Though they weren't actually called serial killers back then, Wikipedia's list of serial killers in the United States details the crimes of numerous offenders dating back to so-called river pirates and outlaws in the early 1800s. The list of unidentified serial killers is a lot shorter. The Atlanta Ripper stalked and killed women in 1911. The Axemen of New Orleans slayed at least six between 1918 and 1919. The Cleveland Torso Murderer is responsible for a dozen of deaths in the Ohio City in the 1930s. But no one in tiny Texarkana could have anticipated that their town would be host to the next mystery murderer, who would go on to inspire the likes of the Zodiac Killer and the Monster of Florence. That's not to say that the Texarkanians didn't know crime. A major transportation hub, the city attracted drifters and vagrants. In his book about the case, author James Presley described the town at the time as calloused to murder. Still, the average Texarkanian in the 1940s didn't expect to be implicated in any of the criminal goings on, especially not young people. College-aged kids in Texarkana would dance all night long at nightclubs, stop by middle-of-the-night parties, and end up eating breakfast at all-night diners. On the evening of February 22, 1946, 19-year-old Mary Jean Larry and 25-year-old Jimmy Hollis joined another couple for a double date to see a movie. After the movie, they split from their friends who headed home, but Jimmy and Mary Jean weren't ready to call it a night. Just before midnight, the young couple, riding in Jimmy's car, rolled onto Richmond Road, a popular lover's lane. Just 10 minutes later, a mysterious hooded figure approached the car, shining a flashlight in the windows. The conclusion that innocent young Jimmy jumped to was that it must be someone playing a prank, and they must have the wrong guy, because this didn't seem to be anybody he knew. At that particular time and place, most people's assumptions would probably be similar. 
No one was ever expecting a creep to be lurking at a lover's lane. Most people were relieved when they pulled up on Richmond Road and realized they were alone in the dark. The masked assailant, who was wearing what appeared to be a white pillowcase with holes cut for his eyes and mouth, ordered Larry and Hollis out of the vehicle. At gunpoint, he yelled for Jimmy Hollis to take his pants off, and Jimmy complied. Nevertheless, the six-foot-tall attacker started pistol-whipping Hollis and stomping on him. Hollis remembers the man wearing cleats. A horrified Mary Jean Larry cowered nearby and heard a crack so loud she thought the pistol had accidentally gone off in the gunman's hand. She later discovered the sound she had heard was her boyfriend's skull cracking. The creep hit Mary Jean over the head with what is assumed to be a lead pipe, and then when she regained consciousness, instructed her to run. She sprinted to the road, hoping to find help. Looking out for a passing car, she spotted a car parked on the side of the road with its lights out and nobody inside. It was only much later that she realized it could have been the assailant's car, and that clue might have helped track him down. In James Presley's book, he pointed out that detail might not have helped at all because of the extremely high prevalence of automobile theft at the time. It was the era between the time that folks realized how incredibly easy it was to steal a car and the time that car companies started making their vehicles a little more secure. The tall hooded stranger ran after Larry and when he caught up with her, asked her why she ran. Though he had told her to run just moments ago. He yelled that she was a liar, and then he sexually assaulted Mary Jean with the barrel of his gun. Go ahead and kill me then, she exclaimed, but instead the man fled the scene. Mary Jean ran to the nearest house and called the police. She was treated in hospital. She was treated in hospital for minor injuries. Hollis was in a coma for days, but took months to fully recover from his injuries, which included two skull fractures. Miraculously, they both survived. However, both were undoubtedly still suffering from PTSD while the local police grilled them about the affair. The police believed the attack to be personal and believed that Larry and or Hollis knew their attacker even when they both insisted they did not. Mary Jean told the cops that though she didn't see his face, she thought the assailant was black. She said it was because of the sound of his voice, but considering the racial climate at the time in Southern states like Arkansas and Texas, This suggestion was more likely motivated by racism. Similarly racist, the cops later declared that they didn't believe a black man would be clever enough to carry out these types of attacks and evade capture. Gross. Yeah. Jimmy Hollis said that he got the impression their attacker was white. Because their stories didn't match, authorities believe Hollis and Larry were covering for the fact that they knew the man who had assaulted them. Hollis was enraged insisting that some violent creep was still out there and they would likely kill the next couple he went after if the cops didn't start taking this more seriously. The next couple attacked while parked at a lover's lane was 17-year-old Pollyann Moore and 29-year-old Richard Griffin, who had been dating for about six weeks. On the morning of March 24, 1946, a driver on Highway 67 spotted a car parked on a quiet offshoot that was a known lover's lane. Approaching the 41 Oldsmobile, the man thought at first that the people inside were sleeping, but he soon discovered they were actually dead and called the police. Morning rain had washed away any traces of footprints or fingerprints left at the crime scene. DNA evidence wasn't a thing. It wasn't clear whether Polly had been sexually assaulted, so investigators assumed she had not been. 
The crime scene was a circus, with onlookers trampling over possible evidence just to get a good look. The police didn't string up caution tape or otherwise secure the scene. Very little evidence was investigated, but a pool of blood about 20 feet from the car suggested the victims were killed outside the automobile and their bodies were placed back inside afterwards. Griffin was found on his knees on the floor of the driver's side of the car, his pockets turned out, and Moore was found face down in the back seat. Both were fully closed. It appeared they had been shot to death, though only one shell was recovered at the scene, a 32 cartridge casing. The bodies were buried with bullets still inside. Inexplicably, neither body was ever autopsied. Investigators refused to believe that these murders could be connected to the attacks on Mary Jean Larry and Jimmy Hollis. They interviewed around 60 witnesses and posted a reward for information, which resulted in over 100 false leads. Truly just kids, 15-year-old Betty Jo Booker and 17-year-old Paul Martin parked at a lover's lane called North Park Road just outside Spring Lake Park on April 14, 1946. Betty Joan was a saxophone player in a band that had played at the VFW club that night. She normally arranged for another band member to drive her home afterwards, but that night she called Paul, who she had known since she was little, though none of the other band members knew him. He picked her up around 1.30 a.m. Some friends of Betty Jo had been expecting that she might drop by their slumber party after her show, and her parents wouldn't have been surprised to see that their daughter was out all night long. If only she had stopped to drop off her saxophone, her most prized possession and a very expensive one, Betty Jo always made a point of dropping her saxophone at home if she was going to party, so she and Paul had probably not intended to be out late. Betty Jo's mom grew worried when she awoke in the middle of the night to find no Betty Jo and no saxophone, but her husband reassured her and told her to go back to sleep. Early in the morning, when she just couldn't stand to wait any longer, Betty Jo's mother phoned the rest of the band and their friends who had thrown a slumber party that night. No one had seen her daughter after the show. Next, she phoned the police and a search party was assembled. Around 6.30 a.m., the search party discovered the body of Paul Martin lying on his left side at the edge of North Park Road. He had been shot a total of four times, once in the right hand, in the back of the head, in the ribs from behind, and once through the nose. Across the street from where Paul's body lay, a pool of blood was found alongside a fence. The body of Betty Jo Booker wasn't found until 11.30 a.m. She lay behind a tree approximately two miles away from the body of her boyfriend. She was laying on her back, fully clothed, her body positioned with the right hand inside her coat pocket. She had been shot once in the chest and once in the face. Investigators confirmed that the murder weapon was the same one used in the double murder of Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore, an automatic 32 caliber Colt pistol. Authorities were uncertain as to who had been killed first, but Texas Ranger Captain Manuel Gonzalez revealed that the young couple clearly put up a fight for their lives, as was evident in the defensive wounds and positions of their bodies. Martin's car was found outside Spring Lake Park with his keys still inside. It was located about three miles away from Betty Joe's and one and a half miles from Paul's body. At this point, it was clear that at least the two double murders were connected and investigators were in search of a serial offender. The media dubbed the murderer the Phantom Killer or the Phantom Slayer 
And because sensationalism sold, Texarkana was in a tailspin. All anyone could talk about was the murderers, and new folklore was being weaved out of the rumors surrounding the case. For many years to come, parents would warn their children not to stay out late for fear of the phantom. The killings themselves were often referred to as the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. Always taking place at night, the killings were about three weeks apart. Similar to later cases like the Zodiac Killer and the Monster of Florence, authorities wondered if the killer's pattern followed the phases of the moon. About three weeks after the murders of Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker, there was another attack. Investigators and wannabe vigilantes alike would park their cars on known lovers' lanes around Texarkana, attempting to set up a sting. Some individuals would use mannequins in the passenger seat to make it look like they were a couple in a parked car. The killer's usual hunting grounds had become a little too conspicuous. Psychologist Dr. Anthony LaPala says the killer kept his finger on the pulse of the investigation and knew which quiet roads were being patrolled. LaPala warned that the killer may begin to make unexpected attacks on the outskirts of town in order to throw off the investigation. Married couple Virgil and Katie Starks, aged 37 and 36 respectively, lived on a 500-acre farm about 10 miles northeast of Texarkana. Just before 9 p.m. on Friday, May 3rd, 1946, Virgil was shot twice in the back of the head through the closed living room window as he sat in an armchair reading a copy of the Texarkana Gazette. Katie, hearing the unmistakable sound of shattering glass, walked into the room just in time to see her husband stand up suddenly, then slump back into his chair, dead. Katie ran to the wall to use a crank telephone to call the police, but after two rings, she too was shot twice in the face through the same window. One of the shots had knocked out several of her teeth and the other shot exited her skull behind her ear. Katie's head wounds were bleeding so profusely that she felt lightheaded and could barely see through the blood pouring into her eyes. She went to get a pistol from another room but couldn't find it. She heard the assailant entering their house by the back door, so Katie fled out the front. Barefoot and bleeding, she dashed across the street to the home of her sister and brother-in-law for help, but no one was home. Next, she ran to the house of a neighbor, A.V. Prater. Virgil's dead, she exclaimed, before collapsing herself. Prater shot a shotgun into the air to signal for help, as in 46, almost no one had a telephone at home. Another neighbor, Elmer Taylor, pulled his car around to transport the wounded Katie to the hospital. Once again, investigators had little time to rope off the crime scene before other agencies and curious onlookers stormed the scene, tainting much of the evidence. A flashlight left behind by the killer was found resting on a windowsill at the Stark's house, but there were no fingerprints left behind. Investigators determined the murder weapon to be a 22 caliber gun, but weren't certain whether it was a pistol or rifle. Tire tracks were discovered outside the Stark's house that seemed to connect it to the other crime scenes attributed to the Phantom. Texarkana fell into a state of mass hysteria, stoked by the media and heightened police activity. Round-the-clock coverage inspired the bedroom community to start locking their doors, which had been uncommon prior to the first Phantom attacks. Gun sales soared, Folks nailed their windows shut. The day after the Starks' attack, 
area stores sold out of ammunition, door locks, window latches, window shades, and other protective devices. Texarkanians perused the classified ad section of the newspaper for guard dogs. On May 7th, Captain Gonzalez advised concerned citizens to load and oil up their guns and not to hesitate if they felt it was necessary to use them. Residents' attempts to beef up home and personal security in actuality made the town a much more dangerous place. A police officer who approached a couple in a parked car to advise them to be careful was met with similar advice. You're lucky you told me who you are, a young woman warned, revealing that she had a covert pistol aimed at him the whole time. Rumors swirled, muddying the police investigation and prompting Gonzalez to hold a press conference to separate fact from myth. Quote, rumors only take the officers from the main route of the investigation. It is so important that we capture this man that we cannot afford to overlook any lead, no matter how fantastic it may seem, end quote. After arresting and investigating over 400 suspects, authorities were no closer to closing the case. On May 12th, Gonzalez issued a warning to teenage sleuths via the Texarkana Gazette that taking matters into their own hands was, quote, a good way to get killed. Major suspects included a taxi driver observed near the scene of the Booker Martin murders and a man referred to only as Sammy, who failed a polygraph because he was trying to cover up an extramarital affair, but was later cleared. A suspect hunted for the assault of a woman in Atoka, Oklahoma on May 10th, allegedly bragged to his victim that he had already killed three or four people, and authorities assumed he meant the Moonlight murders. Once he was arrested, it was determined he wasn't in town at the time of the Stark attack, and thus couldn't be the Phantom. A pistol-toting, carjacking hitchhiker boasted to a surviving witness that he had killed five people, including Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin. The hitchhiker was investigated and subsequently eliminated. A man who attempted to sell a saxophone to a local pawn shop was investigated, but did not have Betty Jo's saxophone in his possession. Her missing saxophone was later recovered nearby the scene of her murder an ex-prisoner of war and ex-Air Force machine gunner were checked out and cleared. A college freshman named H.B. Duty Tennyson completed suicide in 1948, confessing to the Moonlight murders in his suicide note, but authorities questioned the validity of his claims. 29-year-old car thief and counterfeiter Yule Swinney was arrested in July of 1946. His wife, Peggy, provided a detailed confession on behalf of her husband, who she insisted was the phantom. Police were able to verify some details of her confession, including where he had stashed personal belongings taken from the victims. Swinney, concerned he would be sentenced to death for murder, took what is ultimately regarded as an unofficial plea bargain and was tried and imprisoned for habitual car theft. Peggy later recanted her confession, and Yule died in 1994 without ever being charged in the murders. Interesting. Mm -hmm. James Presley, who authored a book on the case, is also the son of a sheriff who worked on the case, believes Yule Swinney to be the true culprit. At 6 o'clock in the morning on May 7, 1946, the body of Earl Cliff McSpadden was found on the Kansas City Railroad tracks his left arm and leg severed by a freight train that had passed around 5.30 a.m. 
A coroner declared his death at the hands of persons unknown, stating that McSpadden was already dead when his body was placed on the train tracks. McSpadden is widely believed to have been the phantom whose guilt drove him to suicide, while others believe he was actually the phantom's sixth and final victim. The mass hysteria cooled just as quickly as it had started, and three months after the final murder, folks seemed to forget about the phantom. The killer never struck again, whether because he was incarcerated or dead or had simply moved on is still uncertain. By 1948, authorities were pretty sure that the Starks attack had not been connected to the Moonlight murders, and they had officially attributed the Hollis-Larry attacks to the Phantom. The case and the panic surrounding it inspired the plot of a film called The Town That Dreaded Sundown in 1976. The film focused on the fear instilled in Texarkanians at the time, who essentially stopped going out at night altogether by late spring 1946. The film was not well received by survivors and victims' families who found it offensive, sensational, and inaccurate. Still, the film is shown in Spring Lake Park each year at Halloween. Today, the Texarkana Moonlight Murders are still considered to be a cold case, and the true identity of the Phantom Slayer is unknown. Interesting, and I thought I would like to see that movie until... Uh, you mentioned that the survivors and victims did not like it. So never mind. <laughs> so there was a movie after that that was sort of a remake, um, mm-hmm. but it uh, it was just less based in fact. Um, the, the remake, which came out, I think, in 2014 or something, um, it was like as if the phantom is still out there and then like comes out to start killing people again. And many years later, and uh, they referenced some of the um, suspects in the case and sort of played with that. So like that might be a more interesting movie to watch, (laughs) but yeah, uh, that does sound interesting. What's that one called? um, I think it's, it's also called the town that dreaded sundown. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've heard of that movie. Uh, I, I feel like it's, you know, quite famous. I don't know who's in it, but I, I know I've heard it, heard that name. But. Yeah, I know I watched it actually years ago, but I don't really remember it. Yeah. So I I don't think it was um, very <laughs> true to the story again. So that's probably why people were so upset about it. Totally understandable. Yeah, like if they used somebody's name, but then painted the like their first name at least, and then painted them as a totally different type of victim. I mean, that could make things a little muddled. So I could see them not loving that. Yeah, I think it's very easy to do that badly, uh, as we yeah. saw with Dahmer and such. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's really easy to mess that up. And people need to remember that these are real life people and they do have family members alive. And it's just not yeah. something to play with for financial gain. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of which, I guess, uh, what are you watching this week? Uh, you know, I did not watch a lot of true crimey things, but one thing I did watch was The Resort on Peacock, which is not brand new. I think it's been out since maybe January or December. Have you heard of this? Is this a reality show? No. Okay, no, <laughs> I haven't heard of it. the only thing I've watched in months that's not a reality show. <laughs> <laughs> Have um, not seen it. Okay, it's really good. It's like a, it's a, a murder mystery kind of oh. thing. And it takes place at an all-exclusive, or I'm sorry, all-inclusive. It's all-exclusive. <laughs> you have to pay for everything individually. It excludes it gets every single work. thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, an all-inclusive resort in Mexico, like near Tulum, uh, which 
like was fun for me because I was just there and got dengue fever, but uh, unfortunately it was not murder. <laughs> Which was so fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, it takes place there. And uh, the woman that's in it, I can't think of her. I don't know her name as an actress, but she's been in a lot of great things lately. Like she was in... Um, what is that? Uh, she was in 30 Rock like ages ago. She's in the Sexy oh. Baby episode. Oh, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> yeah, she's great in that. And then she was in that Palm Springs movie. Oh. Um, do you remember that one? Like the weird like sci-fi movie? I love movie. that movie. Is it called yeah. Palm Springs? Yes. Yeah. Uh, she's in that. Like she's really great. She's a great comedian. And then the guy that's in it, her partner is Cheedy on... Oh. Um, uh, I can't the think of any words now. In the good place, yeah. Nice. And he's also in. I can't think of any names right now. This is like the worst <laughs> version of charades with a rock. <laughs> uh, he's in Midsummer. Oh, uh, also cheaty. He plays like one I of like remember, the friends that goes but... to Sweden, and he's murdered, and like he's great. So they play like partners in it. That's and... weird that I don't remember him in Midsummer, but yeah, he's he's in mm. it. He dies. <laughs> no, oh, okay. He's one of the uh, early deaths or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he's one of the friends that once like studied the cult. I can't remember how he dies in it actually, but mm. um, but he does die in Midsummer. But, you know, they all, all the men end up dying in it, which yeah. you kind of like don't feel that bad because they're all trying to like exploit this cult community like jerks. anyways yeah. and <laughs> kind of being the worst. So uh, yeah. you don't really like care about any of them, but um, he's great. He's so great as Cheaty and he's yeah. so handsome in this too. Like I always think of him as being like a little like nerdy cute with his glasses and stuff playing oh, yeah. Cheaty, but much more handsome. You know, he's this. in uh, This Is Us too. This Is Us. It's that that crying show that everyone watches to cry. It's like oh. I think most people have stopped at this point because it's just been too much. But I think it's Mandy over Moore? as well. Yes, I that is not for me. I tried one episode, <laughs> and I'm, I'm not like a sappy show kind mm. of person. Like I want a murder. I want there to be uh, like reality TV where they're throwing wine. Like I need some like mm-hmm. real action. I'm just you don't not. You want like just sad family drama. Yeah, <laughs> like, I'm not a rom-com yeah. person unless mm. Reese Witherspoon is in it. And then I will probably watch it. <laughs> oh yeah, that's, <laughs> but, that's a good call. <laughs> but yeah, this one's cute. It's a murder mystery. Uh, it got kind of like bad reviews. I was reading some mm. write-ups about it saying it was a bit predictable. But at this point, I'm like four episodes in and I have no idea where it's heading. Wow. Um, so I think it's kind of like fun and creative and it's definitely funny and uh, I, I'm really enjoying it. So I recommend cool. checking that out. That's fun. How about you? What are you watching? Um, I have not watched anything true crimey, but I did watch a horror movie, which was uh, Incantation on mm. Netflix, uh, <gasps> which is a Taiwanese horror movie. Have oh, you heard someone of Someone just told me about this, my nail artist. Yeah, I guess uh, a lot of folks have been uh, already calling it the uh, scariest movie of the year or something like this. But uh, for me, I don't think it was the scariest movie. I mean, I <laughs> we're pretty, we're not far into the year. I don't know if it was this year or last year. But I anyway, I wouldn't put it on any top scariest movie list. But um, it was good. It's like found footage, uh, Ooh, which is fun. This. Yeah, that's yeah. what he was telling me. I love found footage. Yeah, I love that too. It's basically like, um, like the ring meets uh, found footage. This film. is exactly so. what he, the way he described it. Maybe yeah. you two should be friends. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. That sounds great. And I, I like made a mental note that I quickly forgot to check it out when he told me about it because it sounded really interesting. Um, so that sounds great. 
Ah, yeah. Well, maybe I'll you should watch. Out. Maybe I'll but watch that if you're tonight. into the ring and you're into found footage, I'm sure you'll love it. So I'll check that out because, like, I I've been watching. I'm finally caught up on The Last of Us, like up to mm. episode six that just aired. And, you know, I like having a little bit of like spookiness at night, like when I sit down to watch TV, followed by like four hours of the most mindless reality TV you've ever heard of. (laughs) And uh, and now that I'm caught up on Last of Us, I kind of need something else, a little spooky to watch. So I will check that out tonight. Awesome. Well, I guess that's enough murder for one week. But maybe this week you're feeling like you need just a little bit more murder. If so, you know you can always find us on the OG MurderMurder.news for the latest breaking true crime news all week long. You can also find us on Instagram at MurderMurderNews, on TikTok at MurderMurderNews, and on Twitter at MurderNews. You can find us on Facebook just by searching for You've Got It, Murder Murder News. And if you search Murder Murder News on Facebook, our group should also pop up and you'll want to join us to stay in the loop about any upcoming live or virtual events and to find the Zoom link for our next book club meeting this Sunday. We've been reading The Family Next Door by John Glatt and we hope you can join us on Zoom to discuss it. Yeah, come hang out. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews are so important if we want to keep this podcast alive and to keep creating creepy content catered to your interests. Have a great weekend. Bye, spooky friends. Bye.